Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theory of Anything podcast. Uh, your hosts today are myself, Tracy Pace, and Bruce Nielsen. Hey, Tracy. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing good. Okay. So today, we've decided to bring to the table an issue um, regarding narcissism and universality. So I'm going to try to lead out here. and. Um, well, there... What got you interested in this subject to begin with? Oh, well, uh, personal experience. Um, that uh, kind of a slow realization through life experiences, realizing that um, some people, friends and um, other closer family members in my life come to realize, though of course I am no professional, and there are no official diagnoses here, but Signs, symptoms, patterns are, make it pretty obvious what uh, I've been dealing with uh, with some people and cases in my life. So um, it's been kind of uh, become kind of a near and dear um, subject to me. It's been really important for me to understand. I just like to I need to know. I need to know, you know, what's happening, what's going on and see my world more clearly. And um, yeah. So you've been like researching this because I this is that's impacting you personally. It is impacting me personally. Um, it's impacting my uh, immediate nuclear family um, personally. And um, maybe without saying too much, we'll say, let's say this person, Bob. Well, yeah, we'll call them Bob. And there's just um, been a long history of issues um, where this relationship I've had with uh, this person, Bob, um, I felt like I was running into these walls where you would try to um, figure out, you know, how may, how how could I fix this relationship? How could we move forward together better in a relationship and fix things and become stronger? But I started hitting this frustration because, you know, you try the therapy and, you know, if both people don't seem to be willing to do therapy or, or the one party doesn't feel like therapy is necessary or, or therapy is needed at all. Um, you kind of hit this wall and start to think, well, man, what's wrong with me? Because all of these therapists are like, come together as a couple, go through therapy. And the answer is always stay together. The answer is always work through it, that these problems are always soluble and I was realizing that that didn't really seem to be the truth for me. So <laughs> I started exploring different topics and feel like I found a lot of elucidation and answers. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about what you found then. This, uh, this is, uh, I think this is a very interesting subject. I, I don't personally have a ton of experience with narcissism. I, I did date a girl many years ago who I'm fairly certain is at least a mild case of <laughs> Mild's a strange word in this case, but <laughs> was narcissistic and it was very painful to um, be in any sort of friendship or relationship with her. Yes. Um, so I, I know what you're talking about okay. a little bit. Well, um, maybe we should start first with kind of defining narcissism or narcissistic personality disorder, maybe. Okay. Just to see if, so for anybody who's listening, just to get you on the same page of what we're kind of looking at here and what we're talking about, there's a lot of issues around this I'd like to kind of 
go through, point out, discuss, um, maybe even eventually relate it to, to so narcissism itself, and I again, not a professional here, just been researching a lot of stuff, um, belongs within um, what's called the cluster B um, uh, personality category. Cluster B disorders, I guess. Well, that's not the right word for it, but cluster B personality traits. But so narcissism itself, and I got this definition, of, I believe, out of the DSM, which is like the American DSM. There are two. There, America has one and Europe has their own. But basically, someone with narcissistic personality disorder, you're going to hear me refer to it as NPD a lot because that's just less of a mouthful to say, but it's uh, basically defined as uh, comprising a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, whether that's in fantasy or behavior, a constant need for admiration, a lack of empathy, um, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated in one of, uh, so it has to be in the presence of at least five of these following nine criteria, according to the DSM. So these are... um, one, has a grandiose sense of self-importance. An example would be exaggerates achievements and talents, expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. Uh, next would be is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Um, next would be believes that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with um, other special or high-status people or institutions. Um, Next, has a sense of entitlement, such as um, they're just uh, have unreasonable expectations um, of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with their expectations. They kind of expect that. Um, They're interpersonally exploitative. Uh, Like, they take advantage of others to achieve their own ends. They lack empathy so that, you know, they can be unwilling or actually, I feel like, unable to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. Um, And we can, we'll go through some of how that might look. Because I struggled with that, and I'll I'll go over why that was a hard thing for me to to see. they can often be envious of others or believe that others are envious of them. And they often show arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, some of the classic criteria or symptoms that somebody who has NPD can um, display. Uh, and you said that it would be five of, this is like nine points and it would like they would diagnose it if you had five of them? Yes, basically to be um, diagnosed, the idea is that you have to have display or present at least five out of those nine criteria. How about the one of lack empathy, though? Like, is there such a thing as a narcissist that has empathy? That's kind of debated. If you generally, uh, um, no, the answer is no. (laughs) But... And so this is where the confusing component comes in. Um, it's like, especially in my case with with Bob, because from what I understand, the way it is, is um, a narcissist basically lacks a sense of self. So they don't really understand empathy. They um, 
compartmentalize things. They learn how to project. They're, you, you can almost think of them like they're built with pieces of a broken mirror. So they learn to reflect you. They learn to reflect things around them. They have a cognitive ability to understand empathy so they can act like they're displaying it. But in reality, they they aren't. And eventually, at some point, you kind of see that. You kind of realize it, and you're like, this is kind of nuts. So they can act like they show it, but they can cry. Um, they can show those emotions. Um, so that's why I actually feel like this is one of the trickiest components to come to terms with, to actually radically accept about somebody. <laughs> when you see it for what it is, it's it's pretty disturbing. That's been a disturbing experience for me. Um, yeah, that one's a... So, so there's kind of a direct tie between a narcissistic disorder and a lack of empathy. That those kind of go hand in hand. Then, absolutely, those are in the cluster B personality okay. um, categories. Okay. Oh, maybe we'll, we're going to talk. I think a little bit later about maybe more personal experiences. Um, we won't talk about this much, although um, one particular relationship I believe we're going to discuss my my belief again not officially diagnosed or verified is that um uh this person I would think might be thought of as more border, borderline personality disorder which is in that same cluster b category um and I'm going to go over a Venn diagram which kind of shows how somebody with borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder there's a general consensus on an overlap, but they tried to demonstrate how they are indeed separate. I'm going to kind of argue that they're the same and that they're shades of basically narcissism. Um, so let me first say for somebody who has borderline personality disorder or BPD, generally speaking, this person has um, a pervasive pattern of instability in their interpersonal relationships, uh, problems with their self-image and emotions. Um, a lot of these people can be, um, you know, present histrionics or histrionically, and um, they have a well-marked impulsivity that begins by early adulthood and is present in this definition here. It says, in a variety of contexts as indicated by five or more of the following traits. So first we've got... Um, They've experienced a chronic feelings of emptiness. Um, next would be they just have an emotional instability in reaction to day-to-day -day events, such as intense episodic sadness, uh, irritability, um, any kind of anxiety that's last for like a few hours, sometimes more rarely, but sometimes it can last for a few days. Um, they Another thing they might exhibit is Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. So abandonment is a huge issue and fear there. Um, they might have identity disturbances with uh, markedly or persistently unstable self-image or a sense of self. Uh, another trait is impulsive behaviors in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging, such as they might just have a problem with spending. Just you're right, constantly shopping, shopaholics, always buying stuff. They might have um, damaging, self-damaging behaviors in the area of um, sex, um, substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating. There's probably a few others I don't have here. 
Next would be, they might display um, inappropriately intense anger and have difficulty controlling anger. Like they might have frequent displays of temper, constant anger, or even recurring physical fights. Uh, they might experience patterns of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships that are characterized by extremes between um, idealization, so idealizing their friend or partner or whatever, and then devaluation. Um, this particular phenomenon is called splitting. One who is that someone that maybe all of us have known that has the recurrent suicidal behavior or gestures or threats, uh, threats to self or, or self-harming behaviors. And then lastly, um, they might be they might struggle with being transient um, or uh, stress-related paranoid ideation issues or have severe dissociative symptoms. So that's what, kind what, of... What are paranoid ideation? What is paranoid ideation? Transient stress-related paranoia. Paranoia is characterized by the experience of feeling threatened, persecuted, conspired against. Um, it can loosely refer to beliefs of general suspicion regarding the motives or intentions of others. So it sounds yeah. like it's kind of, yeah. Thank you. That's a good clarification. Just something to bring up here. Um, Tracy and I have a mutual friend from Tracy and I have been friends since like high school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have a mutual friend who, for the sake of this show, we will call Steve, mm -hmm. who seems to fit a lot of what you just described. Yes. A lot. <laughs> Including the, the fact that he would become paranoid about people being out to get him or, you know, I, I don't think it was necessarily like paranoid delusions. Like it wasn't that severe. Right. But just had a tendency to read people as being after him sometimes, um, things like that. So I just, it's interesting. I'm just kind of thinking through as you were talking about this, um, that this does yeah. seem to match a lot. The intense anger. Yes. Inappropriate, the inappropriately <laughs> intense anger. Um, yeah. Wanting to fight. Um, um, and having known this person perhaps more closely for a longer period of time after you two stopped generally associating for the most part, I, I you know, I was there to witness lots of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships that were completely extremes that were just, just bad, just bad. Um, I have know of situations where this person kind of tends to recur back to self-harming behaviors or at least self-sabotaging behaviors They kind of do their own self-fulfilling prophecy kind of game they um just say oh they'll be like they'll kind of default back to well i'm just worthless or i'm just hopeless and i'm just terrible um and even do things like they will threaten uh, they'll they'll have um suicide suicidal behavior or at least threats to self-harm uh yeah so it's it seemed like steve would swing between i'm worthless and grandiose ideas about himself yes very plucky very charming super charismatic um just full of fun full of hope you know one day Amazing ideas, very grandiose ideas, larger than life ideas in a lot of ways. Very much existed, I, th I feel like, in so many ways, in kind of a fantasy land. Had um, definitely, and we'll, we'll actually kind of get into this a little bit later, but there's this um, kind of, they kind of exist. I felt like he also kind of existed 
in his head, he had his own idea of his own fantasy, fantasized idealization, sorry, idealization of himself and how he should be and how life should be and how it should present. And when that didn't happen (laughs) or when it was pointed out the reality that you get that cognitive dissonance and everything else and it just goes badly. So just to give some specific examples, though, uh, Steve renamed himself on his own after a superhero character and got everyone to call him by that name. Yes. Um, Just as an example. In fact, most people did not know that wasn't his name. Yeah, they didn't know it was not his real last name. Right. So, yeah. Very strongly identified with this superhero character imagined himself like that superhero character that he was fond of. Would you say it was safe to say that was kind of a fierce, protective vigilante? Yes. A do-gooder, not somebody who did evil things, but was a hero. Yeah. Or yeah, at least yeah. um, a dark hero. <laughs> he was a dark hero. Yeah. yeah. One of the early dark heroes, interestingly. So kind yes. of flashed on to that characterization, mm-hmm. I-, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he would consistently try to do things out of TV shows and comic books and sincerely think that that would make sense in real life. I don't want to embarrass Tracy, but for example, (laughs) (laughs) at one point he had this idea that um, he was going to do this, you know, like at an assembly at school, he, he had like, a group that he would sing with or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he was try- he had imagined that he could invite Tracy to that. And there was going to be this dance part to it. And she was supposed to fall in love with him d- like, because that's the way things happened in like TV musical, shows. Like Greece or something. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And very, very, very sincerely believed that that made sense. And, but that was like, that's just one example. That's, that's one that I think people would recognize immediately, but he would, he would pull things from, TV shows all the time like that, Mm -hmm. where he would expect that he could behave in certain ways that he had seen in a TV show, and then he would get the outcomes that existed in this fictional work, and was often surprised or even upset if someone pointed out to him that that wasn't realistic. Yeah. Um, And it never really, so this, Steve had been my best friend since we were in elementary school. I I met Tracy in high school, actually through Steve, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah, through Steve. But I had been best friends with uh, Steve, I think, since second grade. Yeah, it was since second grade. And um, he was a very difficult friend to be friends with. Uh, He'd have these kind of upswings and downswings. And it wasn't until I was in college and I was taking a psychology class that it finally struck me, oh my gosh, Steve was mentally ill. And that was why he was such a difficult friend. And it totally changed the way I saw him. They, they would talk about different disorders and I would go, oh my gosh, that, that's Steve. You know, and one of the ones they, <laughs> that they mentioned was the fantasy prone personality where you would mix fantasy elements and reality together. Mm-hmm. And I started to realize, yeah, that actually describes at least one personality aspect of Steve quite well. And they would talk about manic depressive. Now, again, none of these are official diagnoses. As far as I know, he's never been diagnosed. He's never right, so gone to get diagnosed. Yes. We'll be clear, we're not saying this is official, but being relatively rational uh, people with these experiences, you can kind of piece together to get an understanding of what you're likely dealing with. But we'll say it that way. One of the things that Steve did with all my life did to me 
and not just to me, but to all his friends, is that he would he'd be completely depressed for a certain period of time and not want to be around anybody. He'd be mad at everybody. And then just out of the blue, it would go away and he'd be your best friend. And he would actually be a really good friend during the up periods um, where he'd help you out with stuff. And, and like, like you said, he was, he was fairly charismatic mm-hmm. um, and could actually be an appealing person to want to be around during the upswings. Later on, it occurred to me that he might have been manic depressive. I don't know if he would have, would have officially been manic depressive. Manic depress, depression is rather severe, maybe even more severe than what he... There, and there, as I understand it, there can be some comorbidities with other um, things like that. I mean, again, not saying that's necessarily what he had, but could be. Yeah. It's a possibility. And... During his manic phases, he tended to have these really super grandiose ideas of what he was going to accomplish. Um, and, and then he would just hate you, just out of the blue for no reason. It, or if there was a reason, it didn't make sense. Like, I remember once he hated me for like a week. And the reason turned out to be that he had a dream where I had done something bad to him in the dream. <laughs> and so he hated me because of what this dream version of myself had done to him in a dream. Wow. Um, another example of how he, he just really struggled to tell the difference between real life and fantasy. Um, but sometimes there'd be no reason at all. At least none that he would give you. He would just thoroughly hate you. Maybe it was just for something you did a long time ago or years ago. And then it would just go away. And he, he could, it, 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 he'd just flip. Just yeah. wake up one morning and he'd be flipped one way or the other. Um, anyhow, I've, just, I've seen that too. Yeah. So yeah, why don't, why don't you continue? So I, I can relate to, um, what you're saying here really so far fits Steve quite well. And I've, I've wondered myself if he did in fact have a narcissistic personality disorder. Um, like right. you said, there, there may be more than one diagnosis here and we're not people who can diagnose, but See, it did make me start to wonder, okay, well, no wonder it was so hard right. to try to work things out with him. You know, it, that, and I've had that thought go through my mind many times. And I kind of, you know, feel bad. Like if he does have an undiagnosed disorder, which I think is at least a possibility, it, his life might be better. I mean, I know he has kind of a rough life because of a lot of these problems. For sure. And even as adults, I don't talk with him much anymore, but like I'm connected to him on Facebook and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's no ill will between us. There, <laughs> we would go through fights and, and we kind of end things on a bad note when I moved away. And, and yet I don't think there's any ill will between us at this point, especially now that I understand, I don't think he's got a lot of control over himself, right? He's, he's not consciously choosing to treat people badly in a lot of cases. He just has these really strong reactions that control him. To some degree. Yeah. And I'm going to point this out too as, as kind of a theory that I, somebody else I was listening to on YouTube, somebody named JC West. I thought, wow, some of this just clicked. I'm like, oh, this, oh, okay. These really, I think, are more related. And I think the attempt, I, for me personally, I feel like the attempts to make them distinctly separate NPD and BPD kind of fails because I feel like we've, uh, fairly uh, decently pointed to certain strong behaviors out of the borderline personality disorder list from the 
DSM here, right? But you can go back up into the NPD list. And if we're applying these to Steve, um, you could say lacks empathy um, by being unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings or needs of others. So when Steve would go through some of these episodes of intense hating on you or um, disrespecting you or just basically yelling, hey, it's all about me. I don't care how you feel. You have to understand how I feel. There's To me, that demonstrates a lack of empathy. Really, it's about their fear and what they're going through, and they can't. They have, they have no ability to hold space or room for you or consideration of your feelings. So I feel like there's an element of that there. Yeah. That grandiose sense of self-important. Definitely preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, um, power, brilliance, especially as um, an artist, um, and definitely idealized love. So I think that these things definitely cross over and create um, a, just a, a new crossover of like a different ways to look at narcissism. And we're going to go through, there are um, people such as like Dr. Ramani Diversala and others, Dr. Sam Vaknin, uh, who basically kind of demonstrate how these kind of marry together. And in fact, um, Dr. Vaknin basically points out how they're kind of really are two um, sides of the same coin, basically. Okay, so this theory then is is that NPD and BPD aren't really separate disorders. They're related in some way. Right. So there are those who will say, if I can explain this, I'll try. There are those who will say, uh, I mean, because you have your classic idea of a narcissist. Think like <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street, like... Um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Wolf of Wall Street. There's your kind of classic, grandiose, overt narcissist there who's just kind of bullheaded, kind of a jerk. But, I mean, definitely go get her, right? There are some positive qualities, you could say, to get things done, <laughs> make things happen. Uh, but, you know, at the lack or at the expense of, of others, there's just no empathy there. So they aren't the person you would think of. They're not a crybaby, right? They're not prone to feeling or being in touch with their emotions at all. Yet you have a spectrum of narcissists who do display these emotions, who do cry, who do pity plays, who come on as the, the victim. So that's where it gets confusing. You're like, how am I dealing with a narcissist when I feel like they've shown me love? Or when I feel like they're crying, they're obviously hurt. Or they're crying, maybe they understand where I'm coming from. I feel it's actually much more, what's the word I want to say? It's just it's more, it's trickier. It's more difficult. It's more subversive. And uh, it's almost harder when you're dealing with somebody who isn't obviously just being a, an outright jerk to you. Right. To okay, so Using Steve as an example, I stayed friends with him for so many years because mm -hmm. he did have that positive side, right? Yes. It was a really yeah. strong positive side. Yeah. So yeah, I, I can completely understand what you're saying there. Yeah. And it, just as a, a side note, I think a lot of these things... So I read a book before I ever read any of David Deutsch's books, and it, it changed my opinion somewhat on some of these topics, but I read a book called Evil Genes. Mm, I've heard of it. By Barbara Oakley. It's called Evil Genes, Why Rome Fell, Hitler Rose, Enron Failed, and My Sister Stole My Mother's Boyfriend. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. 
So, yeah, it's it was an interesting book. And um, obviously, you can tell from the title that she is trying to blame certain personality disorders on genes. Now, I, I should tell you, when you read the book in full, it's a much more nuanced look than simply trying to blame the genes for it. Right. But I, I suspect a lot of people, and this is why we mentioned universality, explanatory universality, that's going to give some people a stomachache right off the bat, the, the very idea of trying to blame the genes for right. a personality disorder. But we, we can talk about that later. I had read this book, and, I, I, and she, she does a fairly good job of going through various studies and what the science is on the subject and things like that. Um, and it was kind of my introduction to a lot of this. I mean, I, my introduction was probably that I took a psychology class when I was in college, and then years later I read this book. But I, I was actually surprised at um, the depth to which she had researched this and tried to pull these things together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and her, um, one of the things that she points out, though, is that a lot of these traits are positives. They can be quite bad for the people in the narcissist's life. Yeah, yeah. But bad for relationships, good for business. Yes, often Basically. very good, right? And she gives examples of famous men who would fit a lot of these traits, but that we would think of in very positive ways. She, the ones that she kind of came back to a lot were George Washington, mm-hmm. Gandhi, mm-hmm. and uh, Winston Churchill. Yep. So those would be her positive examples. And her negative examples would be like Mao, Hitler, you know, did yes. other. <laughs> and like I said, this is actually a much more nuanced book than the title makes it sound. But she points out that like, Winston Churchill may not have been capable of being Winston Churchill, but for the fact that he was a narcissist. <laughs> he, he sincerely believed he was a Superman, and that allowed him to be a Superman, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, he was actually able to accomplish things that nobody else could, um, and that was a good thing, right? So it, it's interesting, and, and that's, you know, everybody's different. And this is one of the things she kind of points out in the book. Steve really did have a number of upsides. I I think he's a likable person for the most part. Right. It just, yeah. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and, and and half the time he's a good friend, right? So yeah, sorry for that aside. Go ahead. No, that's great. I think that ties in beautifully because I do, I don't want to come out of this saying um, narcissists and BPD people are horrible, evil people. Um, they're just hurting, right? And um, But they're, they are, I don't know, and I think we'll talk about this again later. It, it does seem that it is some kind of a strategy that our genes and cultures have taken because there is some benefit to be had even though it's hurtful. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. All right. So there is, if you, if anybody feels like looking this up from uh, a Venn diagram from border, borderline personality disorder, a clinical guide. Um, and I, I failed to write down who wrote it, but if you look it up, you'd find it easy. Uh, they basically um, overlap these traits and and try to point out where a, a borderline personality disorder person and a narcissist meet. Um, 
and then I'm kind of going to point out why I actually think it's way muddier than this. There really isn't, and maybe shouldn't be a clear distinction. This is opinion. But for, for reasons and facts, I think that we were trying to point out earlier with experiences with people we know. Um, so as far as, um, so over on the side of um, borderline personality disorder, these are people that generally kind of hate themselves, right? They have a self-hate, which, by the way, you could kind of say of uh, a narcissist, too. And we'll get into that or try. Um, but four main traits are listed as supposedly belonging just to uh, BPD people. One is impulsivity. Two is intolerance of aloneness. Three is fear of abandonment. Uh, and four is concern about or with acceptance and nurturance, not being nurtured. Okay, so we have that over there on the BPD side. On the narcissistic personality disorder side, they basically have um, literally kind of have a lack of sense of self. They need people. Uh, one um, person out there on YouTube who I think is gaining popularity, his name is H.G. Tudor. He has a system where he kind of breaks this down, but he describes it as, because he himself is a diagnosed narcissist, um, as people and needing people as fuel and relationships, as it's fuel to help them feel good, I guess, basically be happy. They need people as fuel. It, it kind of drives why they do what they do. Um, so they have a need for people to validate and reflect back to them constantly who they are. So on this side, on the their side of the Venn diagram is one, they have a grandiose self-image. Two, they have a sense of superiority. Three, they need to be admired. And four, they have a concern about uh, status or task performance. They're concerned with status and all that. Any questions on that so far? No, 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 no. It sounds good. Okay. And then according to this diagram, they only put three characteristics that are overlapping that are shared by people with, uh, by, uh, not, I keep wanting to say bipolar, sorry, borderline uh, disorders and narcissistic disorders. Um, one is they both have a sensitivity to criticism and rejection, so shared. They both share ragefulness. We probably all know somebody who's just, just exhibited that. I know I have. We have. And then third shared is entitlement. So this person basically describes it as borderlines hate themselves, but there's an underlying feeling of entitlement that's like a direct result of their victimized disposition. So they tend to have this victimized sense of self, but both borderline and narcissist uh, people, they both kind of have a, d a deep resentment for people um, for making them feel unseen or like bad objects, which is a message they get. Uh, and we'll go over this a little bit later too, which they get from their super early developmental years. Um, so basically you can both, you can think of them both as they're victims of reality and they feel inherently entitled to some sort of compensation because of this issue. Um, and I like what JC said, she basically, and I think Dr. Vaknin kind of suggests this too, but I'm kind of uh, agreeing that maybe with the idea that borderlines um, are failed narcissists um, for these reasons. Because I think we can actually lump their supposedly separate lists and kind of um, 
put a different nuance to what those definitions would be because it's all it's almost like it's semantics and they really are kind of maybe the same thing okay so so for the list uh, on the borderlines they have one of the, the first ones listed was uh, was intolerance for aloneness um so people with so so that's for the borderlines but also if you think about it so a person who has uh, who's a narcissist lacks a sense of self and so in reality they too have a constant need for people and validation through other people right so they basically need as this guy hg2 fuel they need fuel from people and interactions with people um through a whole host of ways whether those are lovers friends family you name it they, there's all the different ways they get that so um but basically, these people need constant admiration, constant validation to be reflected back to them, to confirm to them how wonderful they are. So on the narcissist side, that was listed as a need to be admired. Um, I kind of think those are kind of semantics, because if a borderline has an intolerance for aloneness, so does a narcissist, because they also need people to be admired. So they both, oh, in maybe yes, slightly separate ways, but basically in the same way, it's a shared characteristic. They both cannot, they can't tolerate being alone because a narcissist who is alone has nobody to reflect back to them and give them the fuel they need to, to show them how wonderful they are to give them what they need. They both have this need to be admired and they both really have an intolerance for aloneness. So to me, semantics, right? Okay, I, I can see your argument, sure. Okay. People can feel free to disagree because I'm sure they will, and that's okay. Well, and, um, and these these are just early, from what you're saying, these are just early ideas from certain researchers. Yeah, so yes, they're not widely accepted. Exactly, exactly. But okay. it's all about throwing out ideas, and they get shot down, or you hopefully kind of go, "Hmm, let's think about that." So next up, for um, if we go back to the borderline side, one of the things on their list was um, fear of abandonment. Now, so that we all kind of know what that is, right? Everybody probably has that to some extent, unless you're a securely attached person. Um, but if you look at it from the side of like, okay, so if you've ever known like a narcissist, so let's go back to our shared experience with Steve as an example. What happens when you walk away from a narcissist? In your so, experience, what would happen when you'd walk away from them in one of their fits or rages or as a friend? So, okay, so I, I can give, so my experience with narcissists would be Steve and um, let's, the girl that I was friends with slash dated, let's, let's call her Marcy. Marcy, okay. They would try to, they would try to pull you back, basically, mm -hmm. right? So, so Steve would show up after you would just decided, that's it, I'm done. And he'd just suddenly be your best friend. And it would be very hard to turn him away because he's being kind to you. He'd go out of his way to be kind to you. And with Marcy, now let me say Marcy is again. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I, mm -hmm. I am in no way able to do a diagnosis. But like, I'd be surprised if Steve couldn't be diagnosed with at least narcissistic personality disorder. Right. But I'm not sure Marcy would. Right. I think Marcy's more of. Uh, an edge case. Yeah. Um, and that's a good point because in reality, the other thing I wanted to point it out, uh, point out, none of us are immune to this. Everybody, every single person has narcissistic traits. And sometimes due to um, 
our environment or certain experiences or things that were going on, if we've been butting up against a lot of pain or adversity for a while, our empathy levels drop and that our narcissistic traits rise, whether it's to protect us, or but it's usually temporary and we'll subside back down to the more empathetic, natural person that we are. So we all do have the ability to have a narcissistic trait come to the forefront sometimes, but it's not consistent. It's not generally... So this is this is actually one of the, the things that I think um, is a little bit weird about mental illness. We can maybe talk a bit more about yeah. this. Yeah. So the whole idea of an illness, so, um, a lot of some lot some of the fans of Popper and Deutsch mm-hmm. like a guy named Thomas Saz. I don't know if I pronounced that name, or maybe that's Sass. He claims there's no such thing as mental illness, and most people, including Popper, by the way thought that he was wrong. But like, I know that like some pretty well-known Deutschians like Brett Hall has really kind of said a lot of positive things about Thomas Saws. Um, and, and I think most of us feel like he did say a lot of good things. So it's not like he was a quack or something. Right. And he was good friends with Popper. And I think Popper had a really positive opinion of him on most of his ideas. Um, although I have got an interesting quote where Popper basically tells him in a letter, um, this idea that it's not an illness is silly. Here's the thing though. Mental illness is the word illness. That's an analogy. It's an analogy to physical illness. And Thomas Saz's idea point was, it's not a great analogy that, that personality traits are unlike an illness in a great many ways. So he was against that analogy. And I think like with most analogies, it kind of works and it kind of doesn't, right? The fact that we were able to conceptualize, hey, there's this thing that people can have with a a mental disorder that's kind of like an illness allowed us to conceptualize, feel for people who had a disorder to see it as a sickness or an illness. And I think that there was value that came out of that, but I think it's not an entirely accurate I guess no analogy is entirely accurate, but almost by definition. So that, I'm not saying too much here, but I can understand where the Thomas Saws fans are coming from when they've got some concerns with that analogy. I don't personally, I think like it's a close enough analogy that I'm fine with calling it that, calling it mental illness. But one of the things that mental illness really is, is it's just completely regular traits that everybody has, but to a degree that it's becoming disabling in their life. And basically, that's what makes it a disorder, is that they're not able to live what we consider to be a normal life, right? Right. And that, this was Thomas Oz's kind of main concern, is, look, people can choose how they want to live their life. What, what, why do you get to determine what, a normal, what is or isn't a normal life? It's kind of at least somewhat fair point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is why it's a little difficult to tease apart sometimes. Most of us can see that the Steves in our life are very unhappy and and really wish they would be, go get help, be more happy, right? Assuming that there is help, because I know in some cases there isn't. And I think that's a natural thing for us to feel. And therefore, we call it a disorder. We, We do that so the person says, oh, I've got a problem, I need help. They go get help. Right. And I think in a lot of cases that works. The person actually gets some help. Their life actually improves. But it's, you know, ultimately a person has to decide for themselves, is this for me or not? Do I decide that this is 
something I'm going to try to change about myself or not. And so I can, I, I can kind of see both sides here. <laughs> um, but for our purposes, we're going to use the term mental illness. That is the common right. term today. I don't think yes. it's a terrible term, even though I've now admitted it's at least in some cases a little bit not the greatest analogy. Agreed. Yeah. Um, getting back to your question, though, um, Marcy, um, there was a quote in Evil Genes that reminded me of Marcy. Mm-hmm. And here's the quote. Subclinical narcissists, on the other hand, are often happy people who take stress in stride. Psychology Today writer Carl Vogel writes, Mild narcissism also seems to help people recover from accidents or other trauma. It gives them an unrealistic sense of their own invulnerability, and they believe that they will be able to handle whatever else life throws at them. As one researcher put it, being somewhat narcissistic is like driving a huge um, SUV. You're having a great time, even while you hog the road, suck up extra resources, and put all other drivers at high risk. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a great description of Marcy, right? I, uh, I uh-huh. don't think, I think she lives a decent life. I think she's happy with her life. I don't think she's seeking fuel in quite the same way that, that you're describing. So she would probably be a subclinical narcissist, someone who wouldn't necessarily be diagnosed with the disorder because it's not actually causing damage to her life in the same way that seems to be having damage in his life to anyone who's on the outside who knows him or is close to him. Right. Yeah. You said that perfectly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, a lot of what you're describing is still accurate for Marcy, even though she may not actually have a disorder. For example, she went, she finally went too far. And I ended my relationship with her. I just said, that's it. I'm done even being friends with you. We're done. And just to be clear, I say we were dating, but this was not boyfriend-girlfriend dating. Um, I had another um, female friend that I was fairly actively going out with and doing things with at the same time. They knew about each other. Um, I tried to get them to be friends. It it was not, neither was an attempt to be a official relationship. And yet, despite that, there's just because you're opposite genders, there's always thoughts in the back of the mind about possibilities of romance that sometimes screw things up. (laughs) And it was interesting because Marcy and we'll we'll call the other girl, we're going to call Nicole. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it was interesting. There was a, a pretty strong contrast between the two that became more apparent to me over time. Nicole being a regular empathetic sort of person. When I ended my relationship with Marcy, first of all, she never apologized for anything she did. She did some fairly hurtful things, and she never really apologized for it. But then she would just walk up to me on campus, and she would pretend like we were still friends. Um, Uh And she would start talking to me. She would sit down next to me. She would try to act like nothing had happened. Which, by the way, might have worked on me had it not been for the fact that I had gotten used to that from Steve from years before. Right. And I didn't want to be mean, so I would sit and talk with her. I was never in any way mean towards her, right? I would try to treat her very well. But I had no desire to be back in her orbit again because of how hurtful she could behave. Mm -hmm. And she would, it wasn't enough for her to pretend like we were friends. I'm sure she knew we weren't (laughs) anymore, right? And one of the ways you could tell that Marcy knew we weren't friends anymore 
was how she would utilize coming up to me on campus. She might, for example, come sit next to me and she might say, she might then start to ask probing questions about how's your social life, which clearly was really just, she's trying to find out, do you feel sad that you're not friends with me anymore? And so I would just, I'd just tell her what she wanted to hear. I'd say, oh yeah, my social life is, is terrible. And she would go, so is mine because I have so many friends I'm hanging out with now. I mean, literally like junior high level stuff. Mm-hmm. So you knew that there was this ulter- ulterior motive to why she was seeking me out. <laughs> and it was actually at this point kind of humorous. It wasn't hurtful anymore. I had kind of decided this is where we're at and I'm done, but I am going to let her stop and talk with me and I'm not going to be mean to her. Um, right. But I will, I will not open myself up to ever being in her orbit again. She would then try to get me back into her orbit. Mm-hmm. She would say, oh, you're taking a dance class, I, I hear. You know, I'm a really good dancer. I could get you to where you're a really good dancer. Come over to my house and I'm going to teach you to dance. I mean, like it was very clearly, I'm trying to get you back so I've got someone to fuel off of. Mm-hmm. In any case, it was exactly what you're talking about, Tracy, that a person who is narcissistic, they've got some pretty good skills for trying to pull you back in. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of know that, that we uh, empathetic types, that if they act in certain ways, that we then become forgiving, often without them ever having to actually change. Steve, for example, he, he would just be a really, really, really good friend to you, but he would never apologize for the way he treated you previously. Right. Is softly. <laughs> Sometimes I would say he would softly apologize for it. Yeah. I, I guess I can think of cases where he would apologize, but I can't think of any cases where it was sincere. That's the trick, right? The sincerity. He, he would like, he would, he could take a, a tone of apology. He could say, you know, I really, I feel bad about what I did. And then like, he would go to some other friend. He would say things that would leave no doubt that it was fake, right? Right. Mm -hmm. To this other friend who would then of course tell me, you know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This is, we were all in, we were in all in high school. So this is a bunch of kids. We're a bunch of kids. (laughs) Right. So I, I really can't think of any case where Steve was actually empathetically sorry. He could go through the motions. He was good at going through the motions. He could put the act on, but there was always some sort of sign that he was just doing that because that's what he knew he needed to do to get what he wanted. Yeah. And for me, the way I remember the motions are there's tons of apologizing. You could feel the immense amount of hurt, but it was more like, I'm so hurt here. Can you help me? Can you forgive me? Because I'm the one that's so hurt. Yes. Yeah. Anyhow, that's my answer to your question. Yes, a person who's narcissistic, they're very hard to walk away from. They have got good skills for trying to pull you back. And really for me, the Marcy situation was the situation that made me realize I am making a mistake with my own personality. I am allowing people like this to abuse me and I'm not going to allow it anymore. So, and then maybe going back to the idea of, you know, borderlines having on their list this fear of abandonment we've noticed that with a narcissistic personality disorder they they also have a fear of abandonment because they have a fear of inadequacy right so if you're feeling you're not good enough or useful enough which 
and that that need to be that way kind of comes from is like the source of their grandiosity. If you have a fear of being inadequate, inadequate to who and in, in, in inadequate compared to what. So I really kind of feel like that um, they have a fear of also being abandoned by people because they need people to validate them and to stay in their orbit to make them feel good about themselves. And, I, and you say the word orbit, uh, there really is a, a particular behavior that a lot of narcissists, and I don't know, maybe even borderlines do, don't quote me on that, but where it's called hoovering, based off the Hoover, the old Hoover vacuums, yeah. they, they just find a way to emotionally to suck you back into their orbit with the apologies, with the future faking, oh, we're going to do this, I promise life's going to get better, we're going to go on that vacation, we're going to whatever it is, it's endless. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so by the way, it's, I've never heard the term future faking prior to future faking. So then maybe my little borrowed theory here of these uh, traits kind of blending together, uh, basically. So you have a borderline personality disorder person. It's got the fear of abandonment. Um, I just really feel like that's a shared trait with a narcissist. Um, I, I can see that. I think that's <laughs> really? a decent argument. They yeah. can't be what they are and who they are without people. That's why they try so hard to keep pulling friends, people, family, lovers back in. So if we move on to the idea of um, borderlines. So from their list uh, on this Venn diagram, borderlines have a concern about acceptance and nurturance and a, a deep sensitivity to rejection. And Every, you know, we all have some sensitivity to rejection. Nobody loves that. Just think of dating when we were teens. It was scary, right? Yeah. <laughs> Being rejected. But uh, for the narcissistic personality side, they have a need to be admired, which kind of taps back up into what we were saying just a moment ago. So if you are needing to be admired, you are then by default concerned about being accepted by somebody, right? A narcissist isn't perhaps so much concerned with the nurturing side of things, ex except in the way that it's something that they actually just expect. They expect to be nurtured by you. It's, it's almost like where they have the chutzpah to keep coming back and asking more for you, more from you and more from you with their promises and, and stuff like that. They just expect they're going to get that what they need from you and they're really good at getting it so i would kind of argue that perhaps again maybe semantics a narcissist expects the nurturance and a borderline needs the nurturance and acceptance um i really kind of think so those are shades of the same thing i feel yeah. like we could safely take those traits and stick them into the shared middle I, um, narcissists um, have a sense of superiority that's from their list right so a sense of superiority might really be just another way to express a sense of entitlement, which is already in the shared traits for narcissists and borderlines. So I really feel like that's just almost like hair splitting. You really could just move a sense of superiority onto the shared traits list for both of them because they both feel entitled to their wants and their needs, which actually I feel implies a, a level of a sense of superiority. They are going to get what they need no matter what it costs everybody else. Right. Um, the reason why we feel entitled is because we feel we have some sort of superiority that makes us entitled to it. I, I can see that. Mm -hmm. 
And then on the narcissists, going back to their list of traits again, um, again, we're going to touch on them having a need to be admired. Um, so a borderline personality person, so un unless maybe they have like a, they're comorbid with the histrionic um, issues or traits, need to be admired might not be a particular word that they use, but it could be said that they are instead, they're addicted, what a borderline is addicted to is your presence or someone's presence to intimacy, to being seen, and then they need to be accepted for what is being seen. And if you go to basic dictionary, the definition of to admire is to regard with pleasure, wonder, and approval. <laughs> so intimacy and pleasure, presence and wonder, acceptance, approval, the kind of things that all exist like peas in a pod, those kind of shades of each other, right? Yeah. Exist within each other. So again, semantics, I think it might be safe to say that both a narcissist and a borderline have these needs. So I think it's a shared characteristic. They both actually do need to be admired. Okay. I, I will buy that one too. Okay. And uh, this concern about status and task performance, it's on the list for the narcissists. Um, you could say borderlines are generally concerned with status or are not, I'm sorry, they're, they're not so much maybe concerned with status as they are concerned with status in terms of social groups and especially with um, in a partnership. So in this sense, uh, they'll be constantly assessing and concerned with the status of their relationships. And if they're performing tasks adequately enough to be accepted and to not become abandoned. So constantly obsessed with that, making sure that they're doing everything right and because they fear that ultimate abandonment, right? Um, so maybe in slightly different ways, but still very similar. I feel similar enough that, again, shades of kind of the same thing, uh, that a narcissist and a borderline are, in fact, both concerned about status and task performance. <laughs> it's just depends on kind of on the task, right? Yeah. And then both borderline per, uh, personality disorder and people with NPD, they both rely on people for their sense of self and emotional regulation. And if that's the case, that really makes them both codependent. They're codependent on others to, to exist and to be and to not fall into what I feel what feels like is a black hole inside of somebody honestly. Um, and from my experience, that's what it feels like. Um, so of course, if you're loving and depending on someone else, who's of course, so anybody that you love, you when you love someone, that person is autonomous, right? So the fear there, right, for any of us and all of us is that autonomous person that you love can leave, right? right? And so just <laughs> the mere having this person in your life or loving them creates a possibility of being left. So there's always that terror and that uh, fear. And that leaves them feeling like a, a constant victim of circumstance when things don't go right. Like I knew you would leave <laughs> kind of, you know, especially like a borderline, you'll get a lot of that. Well, I, I knew you were, you were going to leave me or I'm not good enough for you. And there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. I guess the similarity here is that early on in life, both the narcissist and the um, borderline personality 
disorder um, persons, really they both experienced emotional invalidation at a quite a young age. And we're gonna quickly, we're, we're gonna tie this into kind of the attachment issues, um, maybe with genetic predisposition and then environment and what happens at a, a young age, cause it's incredibly critical. Um, so again, both of these types of people have they've experienced the, uh, emotional invalidation and, uh, and neglect and uh, may, maybe abandonment from their primary caregiver and um, those people around them, family members around them. So you could argue that they basically have um, kind of come from the same war zone, if you will, and they have very similar battle scars from the experience, the pain, right? <clears throat> um, but what I, I read from this person, JC, and what I'm going to kind of propose here along with her, because I, I think I agree. It's what, what it kind of came down to was how, so if they're having the same general experience, they're, uh, they're getting the message from their primary care provider, <clears throat> which is usually mom, not always, but the infant always chooses, they, the infant is the one that chooses their primary caregiver right yeah um and so they're they've somehow gotten the message not necessarily from them but also others around that could be dad or aunt uncle maybe even siblings but they get the message that they are a bad object in some shape or form so they're um they're just in kind of in this space of pain but what happens is you know if they're both having this similar experience a narcissist um ultimately protects themselves from this particular message saying that you're a bad object, you're this bad unwanted thing. What they tend to do is they protect themselves by forming this message um, by creating a false self for themselves. They create a caricature of a personality and a projection of perfection. And that's what becomes their reality. And then it's, it's a nightmare when that gets cracked or somebody sees through it. It's a bad <laughs> It's bad for everybody. Um, for a borderline, they walk around with a conscious realization of being a bad object. So where a narcissist is generally in complete denial, there are those some rare ones that see it, but by and large, it's, it's just something they do not see about themselves. They don't see themselves as a false person or a caricature in any way. But a borderline, I think where you see that emotional, the angst, part kind of come in more because you know we've seen that especially in you know with Steve's case you'll kind of see this I feel like uh, there was always this kind of pain around them because they were always displaying pain or lots of heavy emotion so for a borderline when that pain is too much because they are somewhat conscious of themselves that way of being that bad object that they were felt made to feel it that they were when that pain's too much, and then they start to slip into things like dissociation, uh, sorry, dissociative states um, and derealization. They slip into depersonalization. They act out, or they tend to check out with drugs or alcohol and sometimes harmful activities. So uh, there's entitlement. Entitlement allows a borderline person to develop a fantasy world within their own mind, mm. kind of a secret. Uh, grandiose self-image or an idealized reality 
and they, they're also aware of that, but they tend to live in that fantasy world. And when there's cracks in that, it uh, basically they on some level they tend to know. I believe that they're constantly at odds with true reality. So they kind of know they've developed this fantasy world, and they try to stay in the world. I think we saw shades of this fantasy world with our friend Steve. Yeah, I think that was why he reimagined himself as a superhero character. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Is is this is who he really wanted to be and there was this gap between the personality that he wanted to be and what he actually was steve would not only he took on a superhero name but he would actually practice poses that he could strike under the right circumstance to create the feeling of being a hero in those circumstances i mean he he put quite a bit of effort into this persona he was building for himself so yeah i i can i can see what uh you're saying there there was definitely uh he was dealing with the constant gap between his persona he wanted to project and the reality. I think that uh, we've managed to kind of pull in all the traits that were separated on this diagram and kind of show how really they should really be a soup in the middle with the rest of these characteristics. And I think that's why for this reason, I believe that's kind of why you actually have shades of narcissistic people, because um, you've just got different kinds of narcissists. They just are not all the same. And that's why you have narcissists that seem much more emotional. Um, the narcissist that uh, was close to me displays tears, displays emotion that ultimately end up back into um, kind of a selfish realization it's 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 like a selfish tactic and it becomes about them and then everybody is helping to fix them yeah and being hurt by it basically do you know i um i wasn't going to mention this but i have a, I have a co-worker I, I didn't know him that well mm-hmm. but he had some sort of personality disorder that and he was very narcissistic and he was aware that he was he was one of the ones who knew that mm-hmm. he had a problem. He he recently committed suicide. Oh. And yeah, it was bad. And so I didn't know him. So, but I went to the funeral and got to see the reactions of his friends and family. There were a lot of people who were very close to him. And he clearly had many great traits that endeared him to people. But they would also talk about, in a good way, this is a funeral, but they would talk about some of the struggles with his personality. I think that's a good example of where you've got someone who's got a disorder like this and it's clearly making their life worse. And yet they're really struggling to change and they're trying, they're trying to change. They consciously are trying to make efforts to change. Mm-hmm. And yet it's, it's just so hard. It's exceptionally difficult. Yeah. There's a, a sadness that you just can't help but feel towards people who have a disorder like this. Even in the case of a um, subclinical case like Marcy, you wish you could help them live a better life. And it, to some degree, it's none of your business. They have to make their own decisions. And it's up to people who are really close to them to kind of help them along. But you, you can kind of see the self-destructive behavior that's going on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense. And it, it is really difficult because for myself, you know, when you eventually come to a certain point of realization of who or what you might actually be dealing with, and you look back through the patterns, you see 
all the th all, all those things happening and ultimately for me what i see is that super hurt it feels like a super hurt toddler yeah that's just just i hate to say the word broken because <clears throat> especially in terms of you know helping people or i think people should always be helpable and fixable so maybe broken is a bad word but you can see that pain that has never dissipated right say it that way um but also an unwillingness to reach back or an inability to reach back and heal that and that oh having to walk away from that at one point to, to save yourself or to save um your family there's a lot of people facing that and it's i don't wish it on anybody i really don't it's terrible it eventually feels like uh <laughs> knowing a black hole because that's just what it ultimately feels like is there's this black hole of a person who just so this is my experience who could just this is what the hoovering the whole sucking thing is they're just sucking everything out of you to validate them to give them the fuel they need to feel okay to feel alive while you're completely losing yourself you're losing your boundaries as a person you just it's quite the cycle yeah. I'm going to lose my place here. If I, let's get myself back on track. <laughs> <laughs> so basically kind of hypothesis, I'm going to put out there that JC West put out there. And I think others have kind of touched on this. Maybe some vaccine kind of feels this way. Don't quote me on that. Sorry if you listen to this, sir. Um, it's basically though that um, because of this cluster of personality disorders and the way that that just this, there's really slight nuances maybe to the, how they achieve these wants or these needs or these, these flaws I really feel like they all kind of need the same things in just slightly different ways. It's like, for me, it's kind of a soup. And JC put it that basically a borderline is a failed narcissist. Probably mostly from the, from the idea that a borderline, somebody who has borderline tends to be aware of their flaws. They understand the reality isn't real. And that's, I think, why you get the even more volatile back and forth it's, they see it whereas a narcissist tends to not see it they've much more successfully created a false self that they themselves believe hmm, interesting so i would tend to have thought of borderlines as more severe uh, borderline personality disorder as more severe as narcissistic personality disorder and certainly that's the way it normally gets portrayed but that is interesting that in some sense the borderlines are being more realistic about themselves yeah, under kinda, this way of thinking anyhow. Kind of like there's cracks in the wall. <laughs> so yeah. It seems more obvious. And yeah, I want to point out that researchers, like a lot of the PhDs and stuff I was reading all tend to imply that somebody who has a like, narcissistic personality disorder is by and large unhelpable. Yeah. Not completely unhelpable. You know, there are camps out there and um, who argue that it is, solvable and it is in my opinion also it is solvable the, the hard thing is though this is something that's obviously going to take years of actual hard coming to the table work you first of all they have to be able to see it and then dislike it enough to go oh yeah okay how do I fix this you have to become cognitive of it first and accept it before you could even do all the years of hard work it takes to um, change yourself basically there's this um, there's this uh, attachment disturbances in adults there's uh, Daniel Brown wrote this lovely book I'm still kind of getting myself through but the um, the way that we attach 
uh, when we're young, we, we develop a different attachment styles. So in this um, one particular camp, I've actually taken one of their classes because I feel like I need to work on my attachment style um, as an anxious, preoccupied kind of person. Um, it's a, basically kind of this idea of, it's, they use a lot of mentalizing and you, um, the idea is you kind of start with creating um, new parents for yourself in your mind, kind of like you make a new experience out of it. You kind of do a lot. This is why I say it takes years because you're going to do years of these kinds of mentalization type tasks and works to kind of reconstruct yourself for yourself so that you can actually attain a different attachment style, become a more secure person and move away from this narcissistic person who's so hurt or this borderline person that's so hurt. So <clears throat> possible, yes. Getting that person to that point, that seems like the impossible part. <laughs> that's the really hard part. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And then, I mean, do any of us really want to spend years working on ourselves? <laughs> right. I don't even want to spend a week doing a task. I'm like, oh, that's too much time. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, you know, we're asking, it's not, it's not just that it's hard for them to recognize that they have a problem. It's that we're asking, we're asking something very, very, very large of them. Very difficult. I, yeah. I mean, by and large, I think most of us, none of us like to change that much. Maybe some more than others are interested in continual self-improvement, but the effort of, of changing, I mean, you know what? They found a strategy that works for them by and large. They can get by with it. Right. And so- and we all do that, right? We're, we're I mean, just gonna do maybe it. it's actually a house of cards, but as far as they can tell, it's a house, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They understand how to reconstruct it very quickly. <laughs> so yeah, they make it work. Let's see. So I, yeah, I, I feel like they're maybe kind of one in the same in just different shades. And so there are different types and in incarnations of narcissism. The reason I wanted to bring up the borderline is because I feel like borderline is part of those shades and why you have different types of narcissists and we can talk about that here um so you have your kind of grand or overt narcissists and you might want to think of um leonardo dicaprio in the wolf of wall street so characters like that uh i hesitate to name a certain past presidential candidate although there have been many <laughs> would fit there's one in in particular that i'm thinking of Hmm. yes uh that is basically your stereotypical narcissist right they're just um yeah they're just overt they're very self-centered super sensitive to being criticized getting any kind of negative feedback they can't for example imagine that they actually lost an election not not that i'm talking about anyone in particular no 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 right that's just a random (laughs) example a random example very random um (laughs) they are super sensitive to you know the opinions of others they have this super inflated sense of entitlement all you know it just exudes from them and they as far as an attachment style they tend to be kind of dismissive and, and anxious if and we'll get into the attachment styles here in a bit so maybe i won't touch that too much yet but they also require like, you know, excessive self-praise and, and boasting. And they are completely in denial of any of their shortcomings or weaknesses or failures. It's just deflect, deflect, deflect. Nope, nope. I'm not that person. Never did that. <laughs> you know, I'm perfect. And there's always a reason. And the reason is always somehow better than yours. This is where I like, I think a lot of gaslighting comes in. 
because yeah. they're literally denying your reality when you come to them with something and right whew, right it's maddening yes <laughs> so we can agree on i think we all understand what you know your generalized overt grandiose narcissist looks like which by the way are um really they're when it comes to like hollywood <laughs> i think these people are really overrepresented <laughs> a lot of this like as um and i think this also ties into well narcissism in general because you'll see like you see all the love stories right the the chick flicks and kind of things where you've got this guy who is uh just pouring it on heavy i'm kind of getting ahead of myself here but they'll they'll display traits like um we call it love bombing right so they'll They'll come on really heavy by giving their partner lots of attention. There's lots of grandiose gestures of crazy dates and gifts. They go through this elaborate things to just make them feel like they are this person's universe. Um, they completely lack, uh, they lack boundaries. They completely ignore yours because <laughs> it feels so good. You're like, I don't want any boundaries. And then they attempt to isolate that partner and move quickly into intimacy and I think Hollywood really represents that particular dynamic heavily, which I think is kind of a confusing message. Yeah. Yeah. And Hollywood's not the only place that's overrepresented with narcissists. I, I understand that that's also true for like university professors, politicians, you know, yes. there are uh, lawyers. Um, there are um, certain professions that are particularly appealing to a person with a narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah true so um another type let's see go back here to this is the vulnerable kind of slash victim kind of slash covert narcissist and by the way these are all terms anybody can google and if they're confused or they'll see what we're, we're getting after here i <clears throat> i feel like in my case with bob that i was dealing much more with this type and then another subtype which is called the cerebral narcissist and then we'll get to that in a second that, but basically this type, um, and there's always exceptions, right? Nothing is ever the exact same you know, thing, but this type tends to be extremely sensitive uh, and sometimes even passive. And they might, they might appear shy. They might appear like they're kind of a, a more of a loner type. Like <laughs> it makes me think of Batman who'd show up at a party and be in dark in the corner and be like, I hate parties. <laughs> That kind of it can be that kind of person. <laughs> um, they're but they're extremely manipulative. Uh, they use one of their main arsenal tools is passive aggressive behavior to make themselves feel superior. Um, and they may even do things like put themselves down so that others will come back and praise them or coddle them. This was a pretty frequent occurrence. Um, that's when you get into the speeches of "I'm worthless." you're right, you should leave me. Why are you still with me? And then <laughs> what are you supposed to do with that? You kind of come back with that. No, I, oh, I, you know, I'm a fixer. This is my problem, right? I've got to fix that. I've got to make this okay. I have, you know, that you, you kind of, a lot of people tend to respond this way, especially if you've got a certain attachment style. And by the way, narcissists do tend to pick partners do, that do have my particular attachment style so we'll get into that in a bit or we'll try um but this uh, per this victimy vulnerably 
the covert type of narcissist there, um, they tend to express a negative view of themselves. It says that they avoid intimacy. Um, that, that can be somewhat true. Uh, I think that's also kind of in shades, but like being deeply vulnerable in that sense, I would say, yeah, I think that's actually true. So if intimacy equals deep, real vulnerability, then yeah, that's right on the money. Um, they have an inability to deal with negative emotions. They, um, they get extremely anxious. They can have patterns of aggression, which that can take many different forms. Um, right, that just is, and that's and like, so aggression might be a form of um, this gaslighting, right? That's actually kind of aggressive. Right. Just so they're much more subtle forms. And I feel like for me, and I've actually heard it said that this particular style of narcissist is generally the most damaging um, overall because it's not so obvious what you're dealing with in this type of narcissist. You just right. think maybe this person's just a little bit sad. Maybe they've got depression issues, which they might, you know, probably they do. Um, but it's just so much harder to suss out um, you, that you, you're dealing with a, a, a narcissist. Right. Because they, they don't have any of the, they don't have any of the overt signs of narcissism. Right. They're not for lack of a bit, they're not. So, I mean, a lot of your, grander narcissists they can be the kinds that um there's different stuff but like you know you'd think of physical abuse right or domestic abuse that's one obvious <laughs> dead giveaway sorry that person's definitely a narcissist right um but there's just so many more, more subtle ways to do it like they can be more emotionally abusive like in this so we'll we'll talk about the cerebral type um they <clears throat> so if you want to think of an idea in your head of how to relate that you might think of um, if the TV show House. Yeah. That character, you know, super smart, smarter than everybody else, right? Um, By the way, the the coworker who recently um, committed suicide, th- he was this kind. This uh, kind. Yeah. But okay. Again, he was open about this. He had a great deal of awareness. So yeah, the cerebral kind of narcissist. You might see them overrepresented in things fields like probably like medicine too but like your universities and stuff um and i worked at a university for 11 years engineering field yeah and i worked with a lot of engineers in university and there was a lot of this (laughs) i didn't realize it what for what it was but now looking back i'm like aha i wish i'd known then (laughs) i might have been i might have left with a little bit more sanity (laughs) um but so like the the definition of a cerebral narcissist might be somebody who indulges their mind for the sake of getting attention and grandiosity, right? These kinds of narcissists believe in like gaining and increasing their intellectual abilities. They depend on the master of command when they speak their intellectual languages, right? So they're, they're usually very eloquent. They're very smart, very, yeah, they've just got the words like the, the dictionary and it's kind of like a mixture of the dictionary and poetry exists in the back of their head and they just <laughs> charm you with the smartness and the words and it's so clever right right um the, uh this does kind of tend to play into somewhat you know even sexuality like, well as far as like styles like it's kind of by and large thought that a cerebral narcissist is truly kind of at their core much more asexual than maybe an average person that doesn't mean that they don't engage and maybe don't like these things, but like 
it, what, how it might kind of play out in a partnership is at the beginning of the relationship, they will do this thing that we'll talk about again, but called basically kind of love bombing. They'll present themselves more like another type of narcissist, which is called a somatic narcissist. And these are the ones that are like the beautiful playboys and playgirls, right? Right. That seem ex- extremely vapid and it's all about the physical attraction, very shallow. So, but they'll come off, but there's like a kind of certain charm. Yeah. And there's a certain charm. So they'll kind of come on that way. And then eventually in the relationship, and this is what comes hurt, hurtful for the partners, eventually their availability, their sexual availability declines greatly and goes away and it becomes a source of control. And it becomes hurtful to the partner who's left wondering, well, don't you still like me <laughs> kind yeah. of feeling. So it's just this cycle. They, um, pardon, they have a high sense of self-importance and grandiosity. They crave admiration and they crave acknowledgement. They have a preoccupation with beauty, love, power, success. Uh, they might harbor fantasies about being influential, famous, and important. And they'll often tend to exaggerate their own skills and talents and accomplishments. So, yeah, there's just so many different shades. The, the, I mean, pardon, I think that's why it's maybe so hard to suss out because they look so different even though they're narcissists, they can look so different in whatever environment right. or chosen skill set they have. So, and now um, we can touch on the somatic narcissist. I think we kind of did. Um, you you yeah. kind of get the idea of what that person's like. I, Paris Hilton would be a good example here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like, does it. anybody doubt yes. that she's a narcissist, right? No, I mean, it's absolutely not. Again. Not, we're not diagnosing, but we're just pretty darn sure. Yeah. You can still change our minds, but I'd like to see the evidence. How's that? <laughs> uh, well, when, when it's a famous person, there's a certain amount of safety in talking about them. Right. Because it's like, you're not really going to affect their lives in any way, shape or form. And right. most of us can tell that there's something off with Paris Hilton and the way she acts. Right. <laughs> right. Let's just briefly talk about one of the last uh, different types of narcissism which basically it's more like if you are or have this kind of personality disorder narcissism by default is lumped is lumped in there you are also a narcissist right so you've got your kind of malignant narcissist your sociopathic narcissist and your psychopathic narcissist so briefly a malignant narcissist um, would be like your grandiose narcissist but it would include an antisocial um feature like paranoid traits of they would be ego have ego aggression and what that means is they basically their behaviors align with their personal values and their personal self-image uh, for a sociopathic narcissist that include it includes those people that knowingly and unknowingly don't acknowledge that things like we all tend to morally agree on that cheating is bad stealing and exploiting others for your own gain is bad right that's generally not a morally correct idea but people who are you know sociopathic that way um basically for them that's like it's just like a non-issue <laughs> it the the morality uh discomfort line that pe- for that might exist i think for most people just isn't there for them yeah this disorder does have a nickname on the internet they're called a narcopath <laughs> a narcopath okay. a narcopath um and then, are, so from what I've read, they still can explain what is morally right and what's morally wrong. 
Mm-hmm. You just don't follow it. Is that true? Or is that not what you're talking about here? They literally don't um, know. Well, and when they knowingly and unknowingly don't acknowledge, I think there's a, probably a mix. For some, it probably never occurs to them that it's a bad thing. And you'd probably be really hard pressed to explain to them why it might be a bad thing. <laughs> hmm, interesting. Um, but some definitely know. I know it's not acceptable to steal this 50 grand from the bank, but so. <laughs> um, in in the book, Evil Genes, one of the, I'll have to like find this for a future podcast, but one of the quotes that was the most chilling was a psychopath explaining, um, who was a serial killer, explaining why he did what he did. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I could tell that my victims were, were afraid and upset <laughs> when I was, killing them right but i've been afraid before and it wasn't unpleasant right like literally was thinking like that right it's there was like something completely missing yeah wow chilling yeah very chilling sense yeah i mean obviously they're experiencing life and reality in a completely different lens or through a different lens that's scary but yeah no that's a great example so let's, um, I kind of want to talk about, get a little bit deeper on like where this maybe kind of comes from. Actually, first, just because this is important to me, so sorry, y'all have to listen to this. I just kind of wanted to briefly go through um, things to think about, like if you are or have been or might be involved with some kind of a narcissist, what the stages and what these kind of things look like and some of the epiphanies you might have um, about, I don't know about not hopefully not yourself maybe but about people in your life so basically you've got four stages you have a stage where when you're dealing with a narcissist there's the lovely idealization stage so think of that super over-the-top romantic gesturing in movies like the the romance movies and stuff right so you've got the uh, quick quick engagements quickly moving to intimacy discussing marriage super quickly um, elaborate dates gifts just really kind of ignoring your borders, but they make it feel so good that you don't really want to have or hold to personal borders you might normally have. And this is called love bombing. And it feels like a crazy sick drug, honestly. Yeah. Um, But at some point that honeymoonish phase eventually starts to change, especially maybe after you have um, said, okay, let's elope (laughs) or whatever. Um, then uh, you go through this next stage is being devalued where their behaviors start to change, right? So the, your narcissist, if you have one, uh, might start attempting to change your behavior. Um, you might notice that they're suddenly being more critical uh, of you, insult you more. This is when they start gaslighting you, basically, which is the crazy making, which makes you feel like your reality isn't real. Um, they might be physically threatening or become physically threatening. That's when people get married and then later they find out, uh-oh, um, my spouse is an abuser. Uh, they might have more, they're going to definitely keep and maybe even further uh, violate any boundaries you might still have. Uh, in some cases, they might do this thing um, in this particular phase. It's something called triangulation. Then this is when a narcissist might bring in a third party into the relationship in order to m- remain in control of the one they're already in with you. So there'll be limited or no communication between the two triangulated individuals, except through the manipulator. But it's it's almost like a safety net. It's, it's almost like they kind of start to build their backdoor exit because when it starts to get too hot for them, oh, look, I've already kind of got somebody else on the hook over here. <laughs> um, or something else, on, you know, it could be a, 
that could manifest in different ways, but they might start withholding sexual intimacy and emotional intimacy at this point too. Um, then the next phase is basically where you're kind of being rejected or discarded. And so from them, you might feel contempt and rage from them uh, that they're betraying the relationship or they might accuse you of betraying the relationship. They will play the victim. They will invalidate your emotions entirely and place all the blame back on you. And then they'll end the relationship either permanently or temporarily with attempts to continue this cycle of abuse. And this is why I brought in that word hoovering because by and large, they will at some point in the future hoover you, which is, it's a, it's coined from, like I said, the Hoover vacuum. It's basically a calculating scheme that's commonly used by narcissists to basically suck you back into their orbit and get you back into their life. And um, rinse, repeat, you go back to step one, they love bomb all over again. And you're like, oh, I was... I was wrong. See, they really do love me. Look how wonderful they're being. And this just goes on and on and on. Yeah. Now, oh, were you going to say something? I was, and now I forgot what it was. <laughs> Keep going and I'll... Um, if you remember. remember. Yes. Um, so basically, is how this, this all kind of goes back to, uh, at least I believe, and it can be shown, I believe, um, that uh, to attachment styles and development. Um, so basically... Um, According to, um, I think it's Jonathan Bowlby, but Mr. Bowlby, um, when you're an infant, okay, you're just arriving here and basically following the four phases, there's four phases of attachment, right? So the first phase is uh, called the pre-attachment phase. That phase lasts from birth to six weeks, right? That's when baby is born, is kind of getting oriented, they're learning probably like preferences, like who this, because of this is where, you know, an infant really does choose their, their caregiver. I mean, usually it is mom. It might not be mom. Maybe in this case, if it was this early, it could be grandma or it could be auntie, it could be dad. I mean, you know, but this is where those things are starting to form. So this is the first phase of attachment. The next phase is from generally about six weeks old to six to eight months old. And that stage is called the attachment making phase. So this is when I guess you generally as an infant made your decision and you're forming the attachment to your preferred uh, caregiver. And then next stage after that, it's called the clear cut attachment phase. So this is when I guess things become really, obviously the word, right? Clear cut. This stage starts at about somewhere between, depending on the infant, between about six to eight months and goes till about 18 months to two years, again, depending on the infant. And after that, this last stage um, goes from about 18 months, two months, and then on till about adolescence, right? This is kind of where there's, so there's still some room here, but it's called the formation of reciprocal, I'm sorry, reciprocal relationships. So by the end of the second year or so, um, on one of the, these four main types of attachment, that you're, one of the four main attachment styles is stably established by about the end of the second year, um, both as an internal working model for that child and basically as a resulting pattern of attachment behavior. So you've got your basic attachment styles. So we'll go over these really quickly. So you have your secure person. This is what <laughs> this, I'm actually taking classes over time and I acknowledge this is going to take years and I'm okay with that. Um, to, I want to reach this attachment style because this, I feel like this is where it's at. <laughs> so if you're secure, 
what, what, um, to get a secured child, basically uh, the caregiver's behaviors were things like such that they reacted quickly and positively to the child's needs and they were responsive to the child's needs. I want to point out something here that it's really the bar for how well a caregiver needs to respond and react positively to the needs of the, the infant is remarkably low. If you are able to meet that infant's needs adequately or, or well, at l- as little as 30% of the time, you have a chance of being or raising a securely attached person. So only 30% of the time. Right. That does seem right, like a, it's a pretty low right. bar. Um, and then, so as a secure child, that child's behaviors, if they are secure, they might, they're going to display behaviors like they will be distressed when the caregiver leaves, but they'll also be happy when the caregiver returns and they will seek comfort from the caregiver when they're scared or sad. Um, your next style would be a, an insecure avoidant attachment style. So what this might look like uh, so from the caregiver, this child would have received uh, more unresponsive or uncaring um, behaviors and even dismissive of their needs, right? So the child's behavior then becomes, they don't show distress when the caregiver leaves. They don't acknowledge return of the caregiver. Like if the caregiver leaves and comes back, they, they're like, that's great. I'm going to keep playing with my Legos over here or whatever. Or um, they don't seek or make contact with the caregiver. They kind of kind of avoid them, right? Insecure, avoidant. Next is insecure, ambivalent. So in this case, the uh, caregiver has responded to the child inconsistently. And so the child's behaviors are kind of more confused, right? They, they do display distress when the caregiver leaves, but they're also not largely comforted by the return of the caregiver. They still experience that ambivalence, that insecurity, that stress. And then the last one, this one's just so super hard, right? This is probably the worst of them all. For the caregiver, basically the kind of care that they were able to give that child is um, they were abusive or neglectful and they responded to the child and the child's needs in frightening ways. So this infant becomes insecure and just completely a disorganized person. And you do see a fair bit of narcissism rise from this particular attachment style. It can still exist in some of the others, but um, for the child, their behaviors would be like, basically they have no attaching behaviors. They often appear dazed or confused and very apprehensive um, in the presence of their caregiver, right? It's obvious that they're scared of that person. There's no security there whatsoever. So, yeah. Trying to think of how I want to tie that back in. So it's just, it's in terms of, you know, it seems like there's some genetic um, pro- proponent here, but it's, uh, or at least a predisposition, right? And then the environment basically kind of dictates, you know, the, this, this really critical stage can kind of dictate what that attachment style will be and how that child's going to continue to respond and when and they solidify into the person that they are. So, you know, your narcissistic people and your borderline people are experiencing that same trauma of being told, ah, bad object, you're a bad object, you're a bad thing, you need too much for me, Uh, you're a bad person, I can't deal with you. And it's just the, seems like the way that they kind of, in my mind, uh, respond to that trauma, slightly different, but they're kind of still in that same pool of, of cluster B traits. Yeah. 
So I should know I'm not going to read this part. Um, so let me ask you this, Bruce. Maybe we'll end with this. Okay. I just wanted to pose a few questions for you. Okay. Because um, I have a concern about how things like, say, narcissism might pertain to explanatory universality. So when David Deutsch talks about explanatory universe, universality, and you know, I know you've talked about this and that you agree with him, but yeah. maybe why do you think there seems to be a genetic component? Why can't we just rewrite whatever the default is in our genes using our minds, right? That would be right. lovely. Right. And, <laughs> and, you know, if we go on the basis that we are universal explainers, why do some people seem to be doomed to be narcissists? I mean, why, why can't we just explain to them that what they're doing um, and how they're living their life is wrong and how their life will improve if they change? And then change them to no longer be a narcissist. Why isn't that something we can just do? Last, how might this relate to something like AGI? So David Deutsch says that we should not have AGI safety programs because that would be racist. But what if the default mode for an AGI is to be a psychopath? Uh, because we didn't <laughs> right. program any empathy into them. Right. <laughs> so... So these are all really good questions. And I suspect that our audience, that a good portion of our audience has thought these questions before. I think the discovery of the idea of a of universal explainer is really kind of a big mind-popping thing where you go, whoa. First of all, it makes sense for a variety of reasons. It ties into various theories and arguments in ways that make it very hard to get around. On the other hand, we know of examples like this, like you know people in your life that have a mental disorder or a personality disorder, and it really just seems like there's just no hope. They cannot change. And if they really are a universal explainer and they can overwrite the ideas in their mind with new ideas, why can't they change, right? Like it's really bothersome. And then I know some people also, there was a guy who, uh, Dorcas Pertel just recently wrote a uh, a blog post disagreeing with David Deutsch over intelligence and universal explainership. This is, this is related, but different, but he, he's kind of asking the same question. He's, he's saying, why do we have people with these vastly different IQs, right? And IQs actually, at least to some degree, make predictions about success in life, things like that. G factor is this idea that if you're good in one area of intelligence, you're good at all of them. You know, somehow some people really seem like they're just more intelligent than others. How do you reconcile that with universal explainership? And I, I don't think there's a good, easy, obvious answer at this time. I think that these are legitimate questions and problems that need to be addressed. To do that would, first of all, is probably not entirely possible because I, I don't know all the answers myself, but I, I do know some answers. And I think I can enlighten that discussion. And that would probably be, you know, a separate podcast in and of it self. <laughs> so maybe we'll do that as our next podcast is we'll, okay. we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit more detail. Let me just make a few points here though. First of okay. all, for those of us who have talked with, you know, you read David Deutsch's books and it's like life-changing for some of us, like it was for me. Mm -hmm. And then you go and you talk to other people it was life-changing for. I do think that I'm very pro David Deutsch and his theories. As far as the four strands goes, I'm like 100% in. But clearly, I'm I'm open to criticizing some of the, so the some of the conclusions that have been drawn from those theories. If that makes any sense, mm -hmm. 
I think one of the things I've noticed is that when people ask questions like this of people who kind of buy into the idea of a universal explainer, that they often get answers that are really just off-putting. <laughs> uh-huh. They might be told something like, oh, well, the whole field of psychology is wrong. Right. You know, or, right. or the whole field of evolutionary psychology is wrong. Or, oh, well, you know, it's just memes. You know, people's the ideas in their head, they just have bad ideas. And that's why they, we seem, they, they seem like they have a disorder. And it doesn't really answer the question, not in any meaningful sense at all. And I think the reason why we sometimes get answers like that to what really are legitimate questions is because there is this meaning meanness that exists around a theory like David Deutsch's. People get attracted. I know I was attracted to it. Right. Because it has these moral consequences that I like. Being able to see yourself as I'm going to be part of this program of progress. That's a very meaningful, morally meaningful way to orient your life. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, and I think that when people are orienting their life around a set of ideas that they become a little defensive about the ideas. Right, for sure. On the one hand, these are legitimate questions that need really, really legitimate answers. On the other hand, I don't think we have all the answers yet. So we're going to have to admit that some of these problems are real as of today. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think we'll solve them in the future. I'm, I'm really very convinced that we are universal explainers. And therefore, there are certain consequences that, that puts limits as to what, ev- what is possible through evolutionary psychology, let's say. Mm-hmm. Hard limits must exist because we are universal explainers. Rather than try to dismiss the whole field, which I think is pretty much always a mistake, what I really want to ask is, what can we learn from this theory that will take a troubled theory, a troubled theory like evolutionary psychology, and how Mm -hmm. can we turn it into something that's actually good by incorporating the idea of universal explainers? And I think the end result is probably going to make nobody today particularly happy. If you... (laughs) If you are someone who is a scientist who's in the evolutionary psychology field, I can understand why you'd be threatened by the theory of universal explainers. And that's too bad because it's going to turn out to be a true theory and it's going to adapt your field and your field's going to have to change because of it. Okay. You can get on board now or you can get on board later, but it's going to happen. Because it needs to happen. Right. On the other hand, I can understand why someone who's bought into the idea of universal explainers might feel threatened by the studies that come out of evolutionary psychology and might therefore choose to not actually look at the fact that they're raising legitimate issues that need to be addressed. Now, knowledge progresses from problems. So we should not fear problems. That's what we want to understand what the problems are. And we want to really sit down and come up with good testable explanations to deal with those problems, not little ad hoc gloss over explanations that are completely non-testable. That's a tall order. I often say Paparian epistemology is a harsh mistress. It is, <laughs> right? But it's exciting. It's, it's fun even, right? As long as you can realize you don't need to panic that there are things that come out of psychology that seem problematic for universal explainers. That doesn't mean universal explainers are wrong. Now, we, we just barely did some episodes. Episode 41, 
the problems of refutation and popper without refutation. And then episode 42, popper without refutation and resolving the problems of refutation. In those episodes, one of the things that I really emphasized is that a Popperian refutation is always a refutation of the entire theoretical system. So when we say that psychology has this concept of a narcissistic personality disorder, and that poses a problem for the concept of universal explainers, what we really, really mean is that poses a problem for the concept of universal explainers and every single attached tacit or you know, implicit theory that we're accidentally attaching to it right now, mm-hmm. right? right? Or just assumptions that we're making by accident or, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily pose a problem for what we might call the ultimate theory of universal explainership, whatever that is going to turn out to be, which we don't have today because we don't know how to build an AGI, right? Right. I have complete faith that there is no problem with what that ultimate theory of universal explainership is going to turn out to be, that the problems only exist because we don't understand it well enough yet. But I can understand why people would get scared. I can understand why people would, if you're, if you're on the universal explainer side, you try to be dismissive of psychology and maybe even become confirmation biased, where not only are you dismissive of psychology, but you won't even look up what studies exist. You, you have kind of pat answers to dismiss them all. And you're not really willing to look into what is it that they're finding, <laughs> right? right? right. Um, and how do we deal with that? And I can understand why if you're in the field of psychology, you just feel dismissive of the idea of universal explainers. That's just some theory that this, a physicist came up with. What does he know about psychology, right? <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it's, and never really dig into why he came up with it, what theories were the basis for it. The, the very fact that it's at least partially rooted in the understanding of physics and how physics works, right? I mean, there's no easy way to dismiss the theory of uh, universal explainership. And people who do try to dismiss it, such as Dworkis Patel's um, article when he was trying to do that for IQ, mm-hmm. he, he's very good at picking out the problem space with universal explainership, but he doesn't really seem to understand the problem with his alternative theory. And of course, it always comes down to this theory to theory comparison. We're in a we're in a state of incommensurability, to use the Kuhnian term today. The uh, theory of universal explainership has really fairly serious issues that need to be addressed, but it's still a better theory than every single alternative that's on the table. And we're not even talking about a happy medium, right? We're talking about there's a truth to this matter, and we can get to it. And it's ultimately not going to be found to be at odds with the theory of universal explanership once we really have a solid version of the theory of universal explanership. Right. It's only at odds with certain abstract assumptions we're making today that will ultimately not even prove to be true. And that's really my opinion on this subject. But I'm open, completely open to, I will not dismiss the other fields lock, stock, and barrel. I think that that is just stupid. I And... I'll get in trouble with others that I talk to who are fans of David (laughs) Deutsch like me. In particular, anytime I say anything at all positive about evolutionary psychology, Mm -hmm. there's an immediate backlash, like really strong backlash. And and for good reason, right? Uh, O'Fallibilist in particular sent me an article of a review of a book that he read on evolutionary psychology. And oh my gosh, it was funny. I mean, his article wasn't like trying to be humorous. But it was a very serious attempt that took the book seriously. 
the problem was is that the book was so obviously crap right <laughs> right oh. he's, he's, he's he's seriously trying to go through and respond seriously to each of the points that the author in the book has made and the points are so crappy <laughs> it's, wow you know and, but this is typical of these fields like you're going to have some complete quacks out there and they're going to say really dumb things but like my introduction to evolutionary psychology came through Steven Pinker. He's a much better scientist than, the, mm-hmm. than this other guy. Right. And he's given numerous examples where you really just can't dismiss it lock, stock and barrel, right? There's, there's something to certain aspects of it. Here's the thing though. There are things that need explanation. You can, you can have some sort of phenomena that exists and it needs an explanation and it needs a good explanation, a good testable, deep, far reaching explanation. Like if I were to ask a fan of David Deutsch, I actually did ask one. I said, how would you explain a psychopath? And their answer was, well, you know, some people develop bad coping mechanisms in their ideas. Okay. This is probably a true statement, right? <laughs> but boy, it sure doesn't address anything. Very vague, but yes. Right. It, it's, there's nothing about this answer that, that really is an explanation about why Psychopaths clump around certain genetics about why they're so hard to change. You know, not, never mind psychopaths. Why with a narcissistic dis- personality disorder, why can't you just explain to them, look, you're hurting yourself in the following way. It's not to your advantage to do this. Do this instead. And why can't they on a dime change? We know that people can't change that way, right? Right. Overwhelming evidence. It just isn't the case. Very, very rare. <laughs> right. So an answer like this may even be the truth right? To, to say, well, you know, they've developed bad coping mechanisms, right? It may even be the truth. It may be completely the truth, but man, what a completely non-explanatory, really not particularly good answer that is. So what we're really talking about is, okay, let's, let's dig deeper. Let's try to understand. So Deutsch gives the example of, um, you know, what if happiness is, ge- uh, the genetic component of happiness is attractiveness, right? What if Mm. it's because they're physiologically more attractive? And then he goes on and he says, nothing, even if that's the case, nothing in the future, you don't know that maybe knowledge will change and culture will change. And what we consider good looking won't change. And that might affect that person's happiness. And so to even call it a genetic component, even if it's physiologically linked to physical attractiveness, you still can't really say it's the genes that caused the happiness, right? And again, completely valid point, okay? Here's the problem with that statement though, if we're gonna be honest with ourselves. While there is undoubtedly a cultural component to physical attractiveness, there's a lot of cross-cultural, cross-time um, aspects to physical attractiveness. And you only live for you know 70 years anyhow, right? So even if you would have been considered good looking in some other time period or in some other culture, it almost just doesn't matter, right? (laughs) He's right that we can't call that a genetic component with a straight face. And yet for all intents and purposes, you were born with it. It's part of your physiology. It was determined by your genes. And there may not be much you can do about it within the timeframe that you've got. And that's a better answer. That's literally a better answer than trying to say the genes played no role. Right. Because now we're, we're, get, we're digging into the actual depths. Well, genes do affect physiology. Physiology does affect personal attractiveness. Personal attractiveness 
it has both a cultural component and well, maybe let's even, let's even go so far as to say it's a hundred percent cultural. And yet certain aspects of it have been stable in cultures across time. Just to give an example, we often, this comes from Steven Pinker. We often talk about how the ideal form of a woman from back in, I don't know, medieval ages or Renaissance ages, mm-hmm. uh, we, we think of them as being kind of fat today because our, our, um, standards of beauty have changed. Rudiment. Pinker points out, <laughs> well, Pinker points out that this isn't actually true. We tell ourselves that, but it's not actually true. In fact, every single one of those supposedly overweight women that was found attractive back then would easily be found to be attractive today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but all these women were still curvy, right? They, they were still easily attractive by today's standards. You pull right. them out of that, dress them in different clothes, allow them, you know, the makeup or whatever they need that would be normal for our era. And they would still be considered attractive women today. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then he also gave the example of if you go to, you know, tribal people living completely cut off from modern, the modern world. Right. And you ask them, you know, rate the attractiveness of the women, the girls and the women in your tribe, and they will pick out here are the most attractive girls. You can then take a picture of all the women and the girls go over to modern Europe and you can ask a modern man, which of these girls is the most attractive and they will pick out exactly the same girls, (laughs) right? I mean, there's a huge amount of stability that seems to exist in terms of attractiveness. That doesn't mean it can't be changed because there's almost assuredly ways that it could be changed, right? Mm -hmm. But somehow that stability exists enough that a good explanation as to why am I unhappy probably has to talk about, well, you know, you have an asymmetrical face and that has stably over time, that's been considered unattractive, Mm -hmm. right? Doesn't mean there isn't hope for the future of that changing because David Deutsch is right that genes can't directly code for happiness, okay? That just shouldn't be possible under universal explainership. But they may still impact you in some huge way anyhow. Yeah. And and this is really what I'm trying to get at is that we want to dig in now. We want to dig in and accept, yes, universal explanership is true. And yes, so is the the field of psychology. But what does that mean? How do we mesh those together? And how do we come up with what's ultimately a much better explanation um, where we can try to understand why does narcissistic personality disorder exist? And what do we actually do about it? Once we really understand it, what do we do about it? How do we actually mesh these theories together and come to what is not an ad hoc explanation that's defending one of the two turfs, but a real explanation that's actually far reaching, that's actually going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. There, There probably is some real hope in the future, right? Once we have the right knowledge right now, today, for all intents and purposes, if you have a narcissistic personality disorder, there probably isn't much hope for you today. Right. Um, as you were saying, it's not completely without hope. Some people have changed, but it's so much effort and our, our ability to help the person is so bad as of yeah. today yep. that, that in many ways, we're currently writing them off today. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways, that's the only choice that seems to be available to us. Right. Okay? That's not going to be, because universal explanership is true, once we have the right knowledge, that will no longer be true. But I don't even know what I mean by once we have the right knowledge. Are we talking about an improved 
form of therapy? Are we talking about a need to take certain kinds of drugs to stimulate, you know, parts of the brain that aren't receiving signals? I mean, like, I have no clue, right? I mean, it's, I don't doubt that there exists some way to help these people, but I, it's unclear how to go about getting the knowledge to help them. It will take us to the regular conjecture and refutation process. We will have to theorize about how to help them try things and they're going to fail and we'll get better over time. And it will be an evolutionary process. And that's what, that's, what's really going on. We are getting, you know, if you lived a hundred years ago, there probably was not even a concept of a narcissistic personality disorder. And there was probably zero hope of you not damaging everybody around you if you right. happen to be a narcissist, right? Mm-hmm. And now we at least have come far enough to realize some people are destructive and it's really hard to help them. And yeah. so we're making progress, right? That really is good progress. Uh, I, I guess that's at a, at a high level, that's my opinion. We will ultimately find that there's no conflict between the final theory of, you know, there's no such thing as a final theory, but the a theory of a, a theory of universal explainership mm-hmm. that is good enough to where we can actually build an AGI, we will find that there is no actual conflict between what we're finding in psychology today and that final theory, that things like narcissistic personality disorder will be able to explain them in a way that makes sense. We'll say, this is what was really going on. This is why it became a problem. And this is what you do to undo the problem going forward. Mm-hmm. Right. Unfortunately, I, I realize that's cold comfort for anyone who's currently dealing with. Yes, it is someone. cold comfort for now, but it, it is. is very optimistic it, it truly for the future. Is. Yeah, I think. Well, let's do this for the next podcast. We will, mm-hmm. um, I will crack open evil genes, the book, evil genes. Okay. And I will talk about the findings that were in that book and how to try to go about reconciling them with universal explanership in, in a podcast that is bound to offend everyone. <laughs> uh, I will do my best. <laughs> yeah. I will, I will do my best to try to work out a very rough theory of how to reconcile the findings of psychology with universal explanership. And, you know, I'm probably wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And that's okay. (laughs) And it is okay. I mean, like the very fact that I'm willing to go try, that's what matters, right? Get an idea out there, let it get criticized. And really, you don't have to worry about much more than that, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm not an expert in any of these fields, so there's only so far I can get. But I think it, it might be of interest to people who have asked these hard questions and wish that they had some sort of idea how to try to reconcile the two fields. Right. Okay, let's do it then. Okay. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. The Theory of Anything podcast could use your help. We have a small but loyal audience, and we'd like to get the word out about the podcast to others so others can enjoy it as well. To the best of our knowledge, we're the only podcast that covers all four strands of David Deutsch's philosophy as well as other interesting subjects. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This can usually be done right inside your podcast player, or you can Google the Theory of Anything podcast Apple or something like that. Some players have their own rating system, and giving us a five-star rating on any rating system would be helpful. If you enjoy a particular episode, please consider tweeting about us or linking to us on Facebook or other social media to help get the word out. 
If you are interested in financially supporting the podcast, we have two ways to do that. The first is via our podcast host site, Anchor. Just go to anchor.fm slash four dash strands, F-O-U-R dash S-T-R-A-N-D-S. There's a support button available that allows you to do reoccurring donations. If you want to make a one-time donation, go to our blog, which is fourstrands.org. There is a donation button there that uses PayPal. Thank you.